This is a recording of the debate, Tearing Up the Rule Book, The End of the New World Order, part of the Battle of Ideas Festival 2018, on Saturday the 13th of October at the Barbican in London. Right, so uh, my name is Jacob Reynolds, I'm Partnerships Manager at the Academy of Ideas, pulling on the Battle of Ideas. I'm really glad to be chairing this discussion, um, Tearing Up the Rule Book, The End of the New World Order. Um, we're sort of, obviously you can read, pick up any of the papers at the moment and you'll hear the sort of, you'll hear Donald Trump's actions or the impact of the Brexit vote be discussed as sort of heralding a new, uh, new age in international relations where lots of the sort of supposedly liberal uh, values-led free market-driven economic arrangements and political institutions and international treaties that defined international relations for the sort of the a, a last long period. You'll hear this being talked about as if something very new um, is happening in the world of international order and that we might be moving into a different kind of a different kind of paradigm that's based on something else. Um, certainly it's the case that like Donald Trump and sort of longer term trends like the rise of sort of non-US powers is certainly adding a different shape to international affairs. But the question um, we want to get into today is whether this means that, well firstly, whether there really was a sort of coherent liberal order to begin with that we can sort of point to, and then whether uh, what we're experiencing now is really a radical change or departure from that. Um, so to dig into those uh, questions, I'm really delighted to have an excellent panel. I'll introduce them in the order that they're going to speak. So sitting on my far left is Cameron Abadi, who's the deputy editor of Foreign Policy. He's previously worked at the New Republic and Foreign Affairs as a correspondent in Germany and Iran. Um, he's, as, as you, you'll sort of be obvious from his title, he's a very much an all-round expert in foreign affairs and also comes very highly recommended from our partners for this session today, Time to Talk. So really glad to have Cameron. Um, then sitting on my far right is Dr. Tara McCormack, who's a lecturer in international politics at the University of Leicester. Uh, she focuses in her research on security, foreign policy, democratic legitimacy. Uh, she's been engaged in many different academic working groups, publishes in obviously lots of academic journals, and has been sort of a very forthright uh, contributor in articles on international affairs. Uh, she's sort of regularly invited to comment on that all, all over the all over the shop, so really glad to have, have Tara. Then sitting nearest to me on my left is uh, Remy Adekoya, who's a PhD researcher in identity politics at uh, Sheffield University. Uh, he's, a he's a columnist in various places. He's a member of the editorial working group for the Review of African Political Economy. Um, you can sort of catch him interviewed recently on Spike, a very good interview uh, there. It was also a really good interview um, on the YouTube channel Trigonometry, uh, which I really enjoyed as well. I'm so really glad to have Remy with us. Then, so finally speaking, we'll be on my right, uh, Bill Derodier, who's the Chair of International Relations at the University of Bath. Um, his main research interest, he examines his causes and contemporary conceptions of risk. Um, he's sort of most recently, as he tells me right now, about to uh, publish a paper on the sort of impact of terrorism around PTSD and sort of problematizing the sort of simple relationship between uh, terrorism and asking whether terrorism really does on a psychological level ter terrorize. So can we welcome the panel? We've got a great panel today. Okay. Um, as is the way with the Battle of Ideas, we very much want to sort of get out into the audience as quickly as possible, so the format you should be familiar with now. But what that means is there'll be sort of very little more from me, so I'll hand over, from, I'll hand over to Cameron to kick things off with the discussion. <clears throat> Great. Um, I thought I'd start just by reiterating something that you uh, mentioned in the introduction, 
which is uh, that the reason this panel exists, the reason that we're sitting here right now, is because of a person who's not mentioned in the title of the panel, and that's Donald Trump. Um, it, I, I, I can safely say that because someone who's worked at Foreign Policy Magazine for now five years, um, I have received pitches uh, from writers all over the world uh, every day, uh, practically, um, on all manner of subjects. But it's only in the past two years that the subject of global order, uh, this phrase of global order, has been a, uh, a mainstay of, of, of those pitches. It, this was not uh, a topic that uh, people were eager to, to, to discuss, nor was it one that readers were particularly eager to uh, read about until uh, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. Um, and I think that's uh, important to keep in mind because um, one of these things that these pitches that I receive have, 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 have taught is that, uh, is that the phrases that are used in these, when we discuss this collapse, the verbs that we use are uh, always uh, about a collapse, about a sudden end. A they're about destruction. They're about something that suddenly happened. We're not discussing the sort of long-term erosion of an order. We're not talking about the kind of um, uh, uh, structural trends that lead to changes in international politics. We're discussing something that suddenly descended upon us and is now suddenly changing everything. Um, we're, we're discussing a crisis, is really what we're, we're, we're discussing. And, and crisis is what it feels like in the United States right now. Uh, I, I just moved two weeks ago from the United States to, to Germany, uh, and it was something of a relief. I didn't even realize it until I was out of the country because the, the, the sort of omnipresent sense that everything was changing, that, that the, the stress of crisis was, was inescapable. Um, but I think it's important, uh, even in the United States, and especially now uh, in discussing subject like global order, um, to, to separate the sort of signal from the noise. John, Donald Trump tr generates a lot of noise uh, on his Twitter feed and elsewhere, and, uh, but not all of it is really uh, sort of signals that, that we all need to be paying attention to. Um, and so uh, what are we really talking about when we're talking about a crisis of global order? Um, I'd suggest that what we're really talking about, first of all, is Europe. I mean, this is really where uh, the crisis of global order exists, if it exists, to whatever extent it exists at all. It's really a crisis happening here. It's a crisis about the relationship between the United States and Europe and the relations within Europe itself. I say that because it's, that's really the only place where global order you know, existed in a tangible way to begin with. Uh, Order exists in terms of NATO, it exists in terms of the European Union, it exists in terms of the United States' relationship with Russia. And, and those are things that Donald Trump has challenged. Donald Trump has questioned the, the, the alliance with NATO and, and, and pushed back against the European Union in, in, in new ways. And obviously his relationship to Russia is uh, somewhat unprecedented in the US context. Um, but uh, we should also remember that these kinds of pushback from the United States, uh, there are precedents for that. And so uh, 
it is not a wholly unprecedented crisis either. Uh, that said, I don't want to sort of play down this idea that there is some sort of crisis in terms of the relationship between the United States and Europe. Um, but when we look elsewhere, I would just, I would, I would suggest a grain of salt there in terms of looking at the Middle East and, and uh, the U.S. role in terms of ordering the Middle East. If anything, Donald Trump has deepened the United States' relationship with the Middle East. We see this right now with the alleged assassination of, of, a, of a Saudi journalist. Donald Trump doesn't seem inclined to question the relationship with Saudi Arabia at all. He's deepened relationships with, with Israel, with traditional allies. He's only deepened that order that existed before. And if we look at Asia, there I would suggest also there wasn't too much of an order to begin with. Uh, and so, although he has, although Donald Trump has torn up the TPP trade agreement, um, that that is maybe putting too much weight on what that agreement was to begin with. Uh, um, you know, that was. This is in the long term. The question of order in Asia is about finding a new relationship with China, about managing China's rise. These aren't things that Donald Trump has helped make progress on, but nor, uh, nor have his predecessors really made too much progress on it. So, you know, that, to keep that in uh, sort of relative terms, I think, uh, is, is important as well. So uh, I suppose that would be sort of the way I would suggest kicking off. I would maybe uh, suggesting that there really isn't necessarily a crisis in, in global order. There's a, there's a crisis right now in, in, in America's relationship with, with the West and with, with, with Europe, and that's something that, uh, yeah, Europe uh, has, to, has to take seriously, but perhaps we shouldn't be using, you know, uh, uh, giving in to this atmosphere of crisis um, that, that I think we're uh, all inclined to, to, to react to Donald Trump with, so. Great, thank you, Cameron. Thanks, Ricardo. Uh, Tara, what, what do you make of Great. this? Great, thank you very much. Um, Okay, so I have two points, really, that I want to make. Um, first of all, the idea that until now there has been some kind of nice, liberal, rules-based international order which has suddenly collapsed or is in crisis is simply unsustainable with the kind of most cursory knowledge of post-war and post-Cold War politics. So I'm going to talk about that firstly. But my, the second thing that I want to say, which I will then go and talk about, is that something very significant has changed. And that is that American hegemony is ending. <coughs> I don't think it's Trump what done it. I do think that Trump has sped up that process. Uh, not so much through substance, although some substance, but, al but also I think through the way, the sort of style of his politics. So those are the two things <coughs> I want to say. So to the first point, now Robert Kagan, who people may or may not know, you know, very long-standing um, political commentator and academic, neoconservative. He's just pu he just published an article called Welcome to the Jungle. And he talks a lot about the kidnapping and we think possibly murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist, which is very much in the news. And his main point is, the good guys are leaving the world stage and the liberal rules-based international order is collapsing and lawlessness returning. We're in the jungle, folks. And it's a really good article and it's very, very representative, as has already been said, of a very, very lively and current and intense debate that's going on, both at policy level, uh, in academia, and also in the media. 
But first of all, I just want to say, we have been here before. Now, this debate also happened after Bush and Iraq. So this is not a new phenomenon. I'd say we're much more looking at a post-Cold War sense of collapse. Firstly, there's really some kind of collective amnesia going on here. I mean, it's pretty well known that Saudi money was behind 9-11. Hillary Clinton knows it. Trump knew it when he was a candidate. You know, this is like a stand... We, we know this. Now, did we put sanctions on Saudi? Heck no, we sold them as many weapons as we could. And, you know, maybe it's just me. I happen to think 9-11 was probably a bit of a bigger deal than the kidnapping of this journalist, even though that is awful. We know for years Saudi and UAE have been engaged in a war in Yemen that's basically precipitating the world's biggest humanitarian crisis. Now, that doesn't seem to be an issue for the liberal world-based international order because I guess presumably Yemeni children starving isn't a problem for the liberal international world-based order. The idea that the post-Cold War order was some kind of liberal ideal I think will be received with much interest by uh, the hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq and Libya uh, who suffered under Western intervention and so on, or the people in Syria who've languished under militant Islamist groups that the CIA paid for $1 billion a year until Trump shut it down, the CIA's most uh, expensive op. Further back, the Cold War, I mean, come on. The coups, the dictators, the death squads, you know, I'm not going to sort of insult our intelligence by saying that the post-World War II order was some kind of liberal, uh, you know, paradise. You could say, we, you know, we're the jungle folks. So I think the wailing and gnashing of teeth about the end of the international rules-based order is at best just a sort of fantasy and at worst an exercise in hypocrisy. But there is something very, very, very significant that has changed. And it's not because the bad guys are winning because the good guys have suddenly all decided to take a nap. It's not that. But before, first of all, what we need to understand is what was the post-World War II order. And that was essentially an order that America made. It broke up the old European empires, the trading system, and America became the hegemon. But what was the key point about this hegemony, or hegemony, however you want to say it, it was consensual. Okay, essentially, um, very, very broad brushstrokes, very crude, America rescues European capitalism and uh, the capitalist classes in Asia, Latin America, and it rescues them from their own people. So, we have, cons we have hegemony, but it is consensual. Now, what happens, this is really, you know, again, broad, extremely broad brush. So essentially over the 70s, 80s, we kind of have the end of the class struggle at home, end of the post-Cold War consensus, etc. Tina, you know, there is no alternative, Blair, Clinton. Very different kind of domestic order essentially emerges in the 70s, 80s, end of the Cold War. So what essentially has happened is the kind of context that allowed for American hegemony to exist consensually, that has basically decreased. That has eroded. So American hegemony now is on the wane. And I think that is a really, really significant thing that is occurring. And we can see it in many places. Certainly, as my colleague is saying, we can, there's, 
there will be quite a big, I think, issue between America and Europe. We have heard the most astonishing things in reaction to um, America withdrawing from the Iran deal. You know, a German foreign minister, I'd, it might not happen, but to say, actually talking about doing alternative payment systems to avoid the dollar, basically. These are quite um, astonishing things. We have had huge problems with Turkey and NATO. Turkey has essentially signed a military agreement with Russia in Syria. And, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things happening where I think it is quite apparent that we're seeing, um, yeah, kind of end of a consensual, cooperative relationship. Now, in no way do I want to imply there's going to be kind of crisis or conflict uh, soon or possibly ever. But we are definitely seeing an ex the weakening of American um, hegemony. We see it also with the North-South Korea issue. There's a really interesting debate in South Korea today, and it's sort of relevant for some other discussions, and it's all about sovereignty. Because, you see, Trump did push the, North Co the Korean sort of peace process, but not as he thought, because he basically terrified South Korea. Into, I mean, this, you know, this is, the, this is actually what happened. South Korea became so alarmed at the belligerent rhetoric that it actually kind of pushed the uh, discussion. You know, so, and we have a lot of discussion, thank you, in South Korea about sovereignty now. Most recently, I think Pompeo, or was it Trump in uh, one, an interview, was saying, you know, South Korea can't make any decisions to end uh, em trade embargoes or sanctions against North Korea. We make that call. So in South Korea, there's a really interesting discussion. So anyway, it's a bit of a scattergun point. So there are, a lot, there are many places in the world, Europe definitely, but I would say also Asia, um, the Middle East. I think if one looks at what's happening in Syria, America basically, it's left holding on to a small patch of land because it no, that is all that it can do in Syria. It no longer can, can control that situation. It's basically Turkey, Russia, and Iran now are running the show. So, yeah, end of the rules-based liberal international order, well, I would not characterize the post-World War II order as a rules-based liberal international order. I would characterize it as an, as an order which essentially, in America was the hegemon post-World War II. And I think that is going, and I think we are just at the start of that process, and I think that is going to profoundly reorder the world. Great, thanks, Tara. All right, that's uh, excellent. Over to you, Remy. Thank you. So, speaking from the perspective of someone who lived in Poland, my mother's country of birth, from the late 1990s up until 2014, I would argue it is true that since the fall of communism, international trade and politics have been characterized to a significant extent by what we could broadly describe as liberal free market values and agreements definitely in the Western Hemisphere and in some other parts of the world as well. I personally witnessed how Poland and other formerly communist countries in Eastern Europe joined this liberal order, adopting its rules and its jargon. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, phrases like free trade, globalization, and liberalization were the most popular buzzwords in Polish political debates and essentially in Eastern European political debates. If anyone doubted Fukuyama's prediction about the end of history after the fall of communism, 
Definitely not in Eastern Europe, not in Poland. The co-option of Eastern Europe into this global liberal order was cemented in 2004 when Poland and nine other former, formerly communist countries joined the European Union. And indeed, the results of these countries uh, joining this liberal uh, global order were impressive. In 2003, the year before Poland joined the European Union, it had a GDP of 165 billion pounds. Just 10 years later, in 2013, Poland had a GDP of 400 billion pounds. Importantly, GDP per capita, which is more significant, rose in Poland from 44% of the EU average in 2003 to 67% of the EU average in 2013, and is expected to reach 74% of the EU average by 2020. So, yet despite this undeniable economic success, directly attributable, directly attributable to Poland having joined this global liberal order, many Poles today join those who have arguably benefited much less, at least in the last decade, from this liberal order, and I'm talking about working class in Western countries, for instance, but many Poles still join them in supporting political leaders, such as the government currently in Poland, criticizing and in some cases actively resisting this liberal order, or at least significant aspects of it. So the question I'd ask is, why? I think the answer is important for two reasons. First, because it is for reasons similar to those found among those contesting this order in the West, that this order is contested in Eastern Europe. So this provides us a pattern. Secondly, it's important because I believe the era in which political and policy elites were given carte blanche by their societies to decide foreign and trade policies and essentially uh, draw up trade agreements, I believe that era is over. Brexit, Trump's election, and a host of other electoral results in Europe have shown people they have the power not just to replace specific political parties in government, but they actually have the power to replace entire political establishments. This means that while the Chinese government, for instance, has the luxury of not having to worry about what its people think about its foreign policy choices or its trade agreement choices, Western leaders are going to have to respond to the dictates of the popular will within their countries, even when considering foreign policy, a reserve previously only in the domain of policy experts and political elites. So then we get back to the question of, OK, so why did this uh, resistance come in countries like Poland? similarly to countries in the West. The global liberal order, what of it existed, fell, I would say, because it ended up creating too many enemies. On the right, it created enemies because it was seen as dismissive of national cultures, traditions, and anxieties. All that mattered was the economic bottom line. As long as GDP is growing, who cares if social cohesion is crumbling? You worried about immigration? Nonsense. Immigration grows the economy. This is a globalized world, deal with it. That was the attitude. But this uh, global liberal order also made many enemies on the left who hate what they describe as neoliberalism with a passion that the establishment was foolish to un underestimate. I have many, as I wrote here, hard left, uh, hard left friends here in Britain who voted Brexit. They are rarely talked about in the discussion. Why did these uh, friends of mine vote Brexit? Because for them, the European Union is the European heart of the global neoliberal project, of the global neoliberal beast. 
and they wanted for them a vote for Brexit is essentially a weakening of the global liberal order. I even have friends on the hard left also who secretly, never openly, but secretly actually wanted Donald Trump to win. Not because they like him, but also because they enjoyed his rhetoric about tearing up free trade agreements and essentially disrupting the system and believed if he won, there'd be some disruption to the status quo and there'd be some weakening of the global liberal order. But that if Hillary Clinton, for instance, won, it would just be the same status quo. Nothing would change. So secretly, many were actually rooting for Trump to win or at least definitely not rooting for Hillary Clinton to win. Thus, we have a situation where the forces of nationalism and the forces of anti-capitalism are united in a mutual hatred, or definitely strong dislike, of a global order they've both come to see as a negative force in this world. So to conclude, in trying to craft a new world order, I think Western political elites are going to have to come up with an adequate response to what research by political professors such as Matthew Goodwin have revealed people essentially seek today, two main things cultural and economic security. For the first 25 years after the fall of communism, late 90s and 2000s, politics had to adapt to economics. In the near future, economics will have to adapt to politics. For decades, the political establishment told people, either you adapt to globalization or you perish. Well, now, the people are telling the establishment, either you change the rules of globalization or you perish. That is the choice. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Remy. And final, final open remark goes to Bill. So go for it, Bill. Thank you. Uh, quick plug. The paper Jacob mentioned is in The Lancet Psychiatry this Wednesday. Reaches the conclusion terrorism doesn't terrorize. That should be enough of a teaser. <laughs> um, okay, so it's the start of term, and I was meeting my students uh, last week or two weeks ago, and they're all busy making friends. And I noticed... Uh, uh, a, a young person going around basically making friends on the basis of you voted Remain, didn't you? And, you know, reassuring herself as to who her new friends are going to be. Uh, and I was kind of intrigued by this. And by the way, if you're planning on being a student one day, that's the second time I've used the student example today. Don't Rest assured, I never name names. But the, um, at the same time, I have a, a colleague who um, for several years has been working on looking at analyzing how people come to their opinion about climate change, or indeed oppose dominant opinions on climate change. And he has reached uh, the counterintuitive conclusion, or maybe obvious one, that usually people's views on climate change have got very little to do with their understanding of atmospheric physics. And secondly, very little to do with uh, any practical engagement with the issues concerned. In fact, he was looking for what, what best maps and allows me to predict what your opinion on climate change will be, and his conclusion was, your opinion on gay marriage will allow me to know your opinion on climate change. Now, that may sound very uh, odd, um, and certainly nothing to do with the geopolitics we've heard discussed thus far, but what I want to suggest to you is that politics, or what passes for politics nowadays, is driven increasingly by cultural concerns, cultural outlooks, and cultural presumptions. Mm -hmm. People tend to pigeonhole people and assume that they have a, a particular set of baggage. You read The Guardian, or you read The Mail, you know, we know who you are, and, and it's presumably not possible in a lot of people's minds to read both of those papers. 
if you voted Trump, you must support the NRA, you must be a bit sexist, probably homophobic, you're definitely a climate skeptic, probably a Eurosceptic if you know where Europe is. Um, it just caricatures, and you know, I, I think somebody already mentioned on the panel the issue of tribes, and I think you know, it is interesting how politics has become very tribalized in that way, or maybe it's the preceding panel I was at. Um, but of course, if you voted Trump, it's quite likely that you voted Obama previously, and maybe not even once, but twice. And that comes as a surprise to people. Um, and it also says nothing about what your economic outlook is or broader ideological outlook. I think it's the, the liberal left who are the most shocked by recent events. I think Cameron's description at the beginning of this experience of people only becoming interested in global order two years ago is, is a good example of that. But whenever people are shocked by things, you can usually rest assured that it's because they haven't been noticing what's been drifting under their nose, drip by drip, day by day, for the previous 20 years. It comes as a black swan moment to them, whereas in fact what really happens is lots of white swans that you've just been ignoring. Um, I think the liberal left are most shocked because they've had it their own way for the last 30 years. Uh, and now they're surprised that it doesn't always go your way. They lambast Trump, of, I'm no great fan, whilst ignoring the parallels that could be drawn from Clinton's presidency or Obama's presidency in terms of warmongering or trade barriers. The end of the Cold War revealed the failures of the left. Um, we know that the right wing's brief moment of triumphalism best expressed through Fukuyama's end of history was rather short-lived because the right are not a coherent group of people. There are different groups on the right, and the only thing that united them was their dislike of the left. Bishops, landowners, and entrepreneurs do not share the same moral outlook. And they no longer now shared a political need or a political project. They were narrowly being driven by market forces. And the one thing we know about the market is that it focuses on value, but has very little to say about values or what people actually care about in their lives. They're looking for moral values, frameworks, a meaning to life, not just more value. And what we see is a period in which the competition shifted from the political sphere to a kind of moral contestation. The United States, if you're in the US, a long time ago, you used to hate the Soviet Union because they were a bunch of commie bastards. They were a political threat, and they represented a different view uh, of what the good life ought to be. Today, liberals are much more likely to dislike Putin on the basis of his moral values rather than any political project that he's perceived as propagating. And the problem with that is that there's no accounting for taste. Moral values are important, you know, good, what's good, what's bad, but in international affairs, they're mostly irreconcilable and irresolvable. And it's opened the door, but to talk about culture and morality all the time, it's opened the door to a huge amount of posturing and virtue signaling. The key uh, often remains domestic concerns that people don't notice. So, for example, Obama calling Putin a homophobe is also actually him having a go at voters in the flyover states that you know, he, he was conscious, uh, well, he, he said they were clinging on to their guns uh, and the Bible. Trump saying that Russia didn't interfere in the election is also Trump's way of having a go at problem people back home. Blair promoted 
uh, democracy and the desire for democracy in Afghanistan uh, and Rwanda really as a message to the audience here about why were people so disengaged from the democratic process. One thing I find very striking is that people are not engaged in international affairs, particularly young people. They've become watchers of what's going on in the world or voyeurs. I asked my students last week, are we at war? And they struggled to know what, if there is an answer to that question. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you ought to think as a young person is pretty important. I don't want to romanticize the past, but there were anti-war movements. There were pro-development groups. And I find little evidence of that today. Today, people are comfortable calling Trump a fascist or Putin a homophobe, but that's a pose, because what are you going to do about it? It just makes you feel that you fly a big pig, you know, whatever, dressed as Trump over London. That's going to have zero impact in international affairs. So you're basically expressing your own inability to change things. But it's not just people who are disengaged. Where's the Washington foreign policy establishment? Um, in the aftermath of Trump. All they want to do is indict Trump, find problems with Trump, but they've got nothing to say about the important international issues of the day outside of lambasting Trump. And outside from the cultural turn, the other key driver, I think, of change in the recent period has been the alienation of the elites from their own people. There's a rejection of not just nationalism, but their own nation, such that elites are much more comfortable engaging with other global, cosmopolitan, cultural elites elsewhere than talking to their own people at home. And if you're uncomfortable with your nation, you're not going to be in a good position to project its interests, let alone protect it. It's not new, but it's something that people, unfortunately, are only beginning to notice now. I asked in an earlier session, which, would you which world would you rather live in? One ruled by an overconfident but coherent establishment, or one ruled by people drowning in uncertainty and reacting to every world event uh, that conducts its foreign policy as a public performance, ostensibly for the public, but without real engagement? And I guess the answer to that depends on where you sit, possibly. I'll be interested to hear what, if people have views. Very final couple of points. There's a, I think there's a mythology about rising powers. When I was young, Japan was the future. Today, everybody assumes it's China. I think the jury's still out in relation to that. I think it's it, probably Xi, Xi Jinping's biggest mistake is to possibly fall for that belief. Um, we shall see. Very final point, culture and politics don't mix. They don't mix domestically, and when they're internationalized, cultural identities and geopolitics becomes an explosive mix. And I think it's something that we ought to be very concerned about. Thank you. Um, there's an awful lot that I could in, like, immediately probe um, on the speakers, but I'm very much sort of more interested in having uh, you guys, the audience, set the tone of the debate a little bit. So I'd like to go sort of straight, um, straight out to the audience. My question is about the trade war with China and what the panel think about how it will affect um, uh, Europe in particular. Um, would it have, will it have an impact um, on the development of Brexit? Yeah, so uh, I was really interested in the point that um, uh, Bill de Rodier made about... Um, how do people engage? You know, how, could, how can you have public debate 
about politics. And I'm kind of curious, there was public debate about uh, international politics. Uh, and we have had it in recent times in Britain. So, um, you know, there's a, a vast demonstration about the elections in America, which was a very strange thing to see because um, uh, no, nobody in Britain's got a vote in America. So it was quite weird to know what exactly we were doing out there um, with our pussy hats on. Um, uh, protesting about the outcome of the, the vote in America. But then the other example, which, uh, I'm sorry to raise it, because I know everybody raises it all the time, but we have had this bizarre um, uh, uh, kind of sclerosis in British politics about a, a very pointed discussion of international politics with the, the Brexit vote, uh, where the public have indeed made a, a massive intervention uh, into the thing, and yet um, the outcome has been um, more confused and more destabilizing um, than you would have imagined, you know, since there was a very clear kind of a, 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 a argument and debate up until the point where the votes were counted. And ever since, we've had this kind of um, mumbling chaos about uh, what can they possibly mean. So I, 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 I'm, I'm intrigued and, and confused about what does it mean to have uh, a public engaged in debate and whether it's really, is it something that we've lost the ability, but we do seem to be very interested in doing it. Um, there was a programme on uh, the radio the other, uh, the other week uh, basically saying in the wake of the crash 10 years ago, the financial crash, the West withdrew from leadership, not just America, but the West generally, and it's moved to East, China, obviously, and, you know, but India as well. And I just wondered if the panel had any views of in terms of the financial crash and the effect that had on Western thinking. Well, first, on the last question in terms of the financial crash, um, I... I think actually um, there I would make a division again between the United States and Europe uh, in terms of its response. Uh, I think the United States actually uh, demonstrated a tremendous amount of leadership amid the financial crisis, a lot of it behind the scenes. But, but the measures, the extraordinary measures the United States took, the, the, that the United States uh, Central Bank took to sort of to, to go into quantitative easing, to provide U.S. dollars to banks around the world to sort of prop up the, the, the global financial system was, was pretty remarkable. And, and some of the details we only learned years afterwards. And so the political system in the United States pushed its capacity as far as it could go to sort of maintain the, the global order as in, in terms of the financial crisis. There, Europe, by contrast, I think, really sort of fell flat on its face. I think uh, the turn to austerity across the, United, the European Union and in, in Britain um, had obvious downturn effects in, in the, in, in, and, and the European Union's inability to sort of clean up its banking sector has had pernicious effects to this day. So I, I think, and, and, and as a result of that, Asia has grown in its relative strength. So it's really, I think, Europe's inability to sort of respond to the financial crisis that has led to the relative growth of, of, of Asia's weight in economic matters. Otherwise, um, in, in, in terms of um, more generally uh, the question of, 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 of responding and debating politics right now, I, I, I agree with all the comments about that, the, the sort of the strange inability to sort of grasp uh, um, in concrete ways the political changes that are happening and to debate them. In some ways, uh, though it may be because, again, in the United States case, a lot of Donald Trump's interventions have been symbolic rather than concrete. For, again, this is sort of to go back to the point I made at the beginning. He has said a lot, and he has 
said uh, some, some, some uh, unprecedented things, and he has changed the terms of debate in the United States. But if you start looking at concretely what he has done, it becomes a lot more diffuse. He has uh, threatened to tear up the NAFTA trade agreement and then sort of makes strangely minor marginal changes to it and declares it a success. He, he has uh, done the same uh, with, with um, so far, with NATO. He's only sort of made threats. Um, you know, so, so it, it, it is difficult to sort of grasp on there where is there a concrete change to debate uh, and, and to push back on because some of it, so much of it is just purely, purely rhetoric when it comes to Trump. Mm. Sure. I'll also pass over to you, Tara, but also something to push on a little bit that came out from some of the other panelists is that, like, um, the, the presence, the increasing presence of sort of political or cultural concerns and their rise to the world stage, again, in recent matters, how does that sort of flow with your understanding of sort of just being the sort of sinking of American hegemony being the sort of driver, or does that just open a space for these political movements yeah, to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're seeing a sort of slow erosion of American hegemony. I don't think it's kind of been torpedoed, and I think this is a post-Cold War issue. Um, but I don't, maybe to talk about that as a little bit in relationship to the question about, um, you know, the kind of public debate as well, and the capacity for public debate. And I think one of the really interesting things that is happening, um, are, uh, uh, there's a good quote from Branko Milanovic, the Serbian-American, or American-Serbian, whichever, um, economist who's at one of the big, uh, I think, New York universities. And he says, one of the real problems today is the elites no longer control the narrative. And I think that's a real issue. So I think kind of the public don't have, or we don't have a problem with, you know, voting, with having an opinion on things. Polls, for example, will, you know, can gauge what people like in a, a country. But because you, you have had this kind of extreme separation of the sort of elites and the public, and the elites no longer want to engage with the public. So, it's, so quite a lot of this is a kind of crisis, you know, as we've talked in other panels, a kind of crisis within Western elites as well. And that's a real issue. And just something kind of quite specific, say in terms of foreign policy, one thing that is consistently shown in Britain and America, public are basically anti-war and anti-intervention consistently. But now political elites are consistently pro-war. So we had a very interesting example in April when Britain, America, um, and uh, France uh, bombed Syria in uh, response to use of chemical weapons. Uh, Theresa May refused to recall Parliament, overturning what was argued to be a new convention that Parliament should vote. But anyway, that's uh, you know, and this was in the face of majority of British people. Several polls showed did not want it that to happen. So not to kind of go into a specific point, but there's a different issue as well going on. I don't think it's that we don't have the capacity, but what has happened, you see that with Trump, Brexit, and so on, is that there's a refusal, I think, from the political elites actually to engage with what the voters want and worry about and care about, and rather than actually engage with maybe political or cultural concerns, for example, um, the elites themselves would rather kind of stick their fingers in their ear and say, you know, no, 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 it's not, it's not us, you know, it's Russia or whatever, blame anyone else for our problems but ourselves. 
Um, so I think that kind of all feeds us into the kind of very fluid um, and kind of quite confusing international situation. But I don't think it's us so much as the political elites. Um, and just very quick on the trade war question, um, I think as my colleague said, you know, that's, it's really hard to tell because one of the weird things, especially in terms of Trump's kind of discourse, is that you really don't know. One day he's saying, you know, we're going to come for you and bomb you the next day. He's saying, but you're a really good guy. I think we're going to be getting on really well. So you actually really can't. I mean, you genuinely don't kind of know what will stick, what's an actual policy. And, of course, Trump himself is kind of at war. You know, the American establishment is at war with itself. You know, so you've, you've had in a, quite a few recent international events, you've had the American establishment says about four different things. And you actually don't know who's going to win. And I think this is also, but this is also very destabilizing in terms of, for other states. They say, well, okay, well, who are we actually dealing with? Is it Trump who wants to cuddle everyone or Trump who wants to bomb everyone? Or is it Nikki Haley? Or who's saying what? So I think that also feeds into the kind of confusion. Sure, great. Uh, Remy, anything you want to pick up from that? Uh, I think one of the main, uh, there was a point raised on the consequences of the global financial crisis. Personally, I think apart from the financial and economic consequences, which were terrible in many places of the world, uh, what might have been uh, underestimated by much of the political establishment is the, the psychological consequences of people losing faith in the fairness of the system. People saw, you know, these big banks did what they did, nobody went to jail, nothing happened to them. Even uh, Boris Johnson, in his recent um, speech at the Conservative uh, Conference, somebody who is a little bit more in tune with what, um, uh, what is the public mood, uh, said this, that you know, it's a shame that no banker went to jail following the crisis. And a lot of the things which happened then, you know, we are seeing some of the consequences today. Financial, that's one side, but also the sort of loss of faith in the fairness of the system, the belief that the system is rigged. And it's definitely not for the little guy like me. It's for those elites up there. Great, thanks, Ravi. Bill? I'm not sure I recognize the, uh, Tara's description of the American establishment necessarily at war with itself, maybe at sleep. The, you know, they're no more at war with themselves as the British government are at war with themselves over Brexit and issuing leaks and accusing each other of being feeble in, in a public space. Um, the, I think to say that America is in decline is to overstate the situation. I think uh, of all countries on Earth, America retains more of what's needed to lead in the future than any other. Um, it's suffering from a tremendous uh, period of transformation and insecurity. Um, I don't, well, obviously the president is not as pro-war maybe as some of the rest of the establishment. He has bombed Syria, I'll give you that, but he's probably done it less than uh, the uh, other candidate would have done and less quickly. Um, I hear the suggestion that a lot of what he does is symbolic rather than concrete, but the, sometimes the symbolism works. You know, you, you say to Harley Davidson, why aren't you making your bikes in the US? And you're aiming to shame them. You're, you know, they're either gonna lose sales or they're coming home. Um, and whether you like it or not, he has had uh, a considerable effect and I think we need to be careful and to try and understand why he's having the successes that he's having 
rather than just entirely dismissing him. Uh, there was a question about a trade war on China and the impact there. I made the point this morning that I think the Chinese are actually quite shocked at the level of animosity coming their way. Um, the, uh, not, uh, you want to, uh, I think the questioner wants looking to link that to Europe. I'm not sure how, but obviously the European Union is not averse to launching its own trade wars and uh, tariffs against China, uh, as it has done on, on many occasions and across you know, the, the rest of uh, mostly sub-Saharan Africa to prevent products coming into the European Union. Um, so there's all of that going on. And then I just wanted to answer the gentleman who asked about, you know, surely we engaged in, we engaged here in a debate about the American election. And that is a pose, isn't it? I mean, it, because you're not voting in the American election, uh, so you can say anything you like. And it's always easier to intervene overseas, as we know, than to, than to deal with the hard, nitty-gritty stuff at home. Brexit has been confused and destabilizing, absolutely, because the people who voted for Brexit didn't realize that actually voting is only the first step. Um, and, of course, not all of them are expressing what it is that they want in the kind of polite language that the liberal elites are used to, so they're held to use the wrong kind of language. I, uh, in a debate about this at Bath, I'll, I'll finish on this point, um, I made the point that if the two universities in Bath were to hope to double their student numbers, that would significantly increase the population of Bath. I would hope that the people of Bath would be quite concerned about what that means in terms of access to amenities, transport, GPs, hospital places, school places. That doesn't make them anti-immigrant. It makes them concerned citizens. And I think, you know, concerned citizens who voted for Brexit may not have expressed themselves correctly, now need to act. Uh, Bill has just said that uh, the US has more of what's needed to lead in the future, and I'd like to know what that is exactly. I was just uh, interested in what the panel think about um, the role and importance of Vladimir Putin. Um, he literally seems like an individual who is hell-bent on challenging, and in, I, I guess his aim is to overturn what would be accepted as the, as the liberal world order, whether it be... Um, interfering in foreign elections, incursions into other sort of uh, states, um, assassinating people on foreign side. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's anything that he won't do to challenge what people assume to be sort of diplomatic. And, and, and is this something that is a significant factor? My question is about um, the sort of paradox at the center of liberal democracy. Um, the fact that, uh, <coughs> generally speaking, you've got to protect the rights of the minority but it's quite easy for people to uh, become an illiberal democracy, as in, say, Turkey or Hungary. And it's also quite easy for a, a liberal elite to become undemocratic, like in the case of the EU. So it's kind of a, it's for society to decide that they both want to be democratic and serve majority and use that sort of system, but also they're going to protect the rights of the individual. And that seems to me to be at the heart of some of the things that are now international. Yeah, I'd just be interested in your thoughts to develop the kind of interaction between um, the way people have kind of uh, experienced the aftermath of the financial crisis and uh, international relations, because I think in some of the comments earlier there was uh, a sentiment that, you know, people's lack of um, real wages and lack of jobs and feeling that they were kind of losing out was an important factor in both the Brexit vote and the Trump vote. Um, some comments from Cameron indicated that the U.S. Uh, responded better to the financial crisis, and obviously I agree with you that the U.S. Uh, went for quantitative easing much quicker than the European Union, 
but then the Union, European Union uh, went for it as well. Um, but is it still the case that those fundamental problems haven't been resolved? Um, I was looking at a graph the other day of US federal debt since the financial crisis. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. um, and aren't we just kind of putting a Band-Aid on a problem? I mean, while uh, you know, there has been job growth in the US uh, and in countries like the UK, there hasn't been uh, growth in real wages. And many of those jobs are very insecure. And I wonder whether some of those fundamental problems haven't been resolved. So my question is, how does that, uh, those kind of problems which underlay uh, the Trump vote and the Brexit vote, to what extent have those problems not been resolved? And how do they feed into the broader pattern of international relations when we see uh, the Trump administration moving forwards with the kind of trade sanction approach to China uh, while still being, being very dependent on uh, Chinese investment uh, in US bonds? So there was a, a lot of discussion um, among the panelists as well as in the audience about uh, the, um, the uh, post-Second uh, uh, World War um, II, uh, World War II order and the evolution of uh, American influence and U.S. influence, and then more recently, uh, discussion, a lot of discussion about Trump and about Brexit and about um, Putin, Xi, and, and, and um, other um, uh, uh, global influencers, but we've not uh, heard much discussion about institutions that emerged um, after the Second World War, including the uh, IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, uh, Interpol, and, and others that really are, are significant players in what, is, what um, represents today uh, significant uh, players in, the, in what we say is the current uh, um, existing world order. So I wanted to ask the question about whether any of your research or your articles have addressed these types of uh, institutions and their role. China was briefly raised, and I think Bill said, well, Japan was going to be the country of the future, and effectively, look what happened to them. But with respect, I think that China is perhaps a little different. Um, Japan, we know, uh, didn't quite make it, but it was a rather smaller country. And Japan, J China has been the Middle Kingdom, and you might just say the last 200 years has been a little bit of a blip in China's history and they're moving perhaps back in their rightful position, I'm not speaking as a Chinese nationalist, far from it, um, as the predominant power in the world. And I mean, we all know that they are the manufacturing hub of the world, and we know that they're doing all these huge things in software and IT and so on, um, which is really frightening the Americans and what is, um, causing a lot of Trump's quite right wrath against them. And they've also seemed to have a very coherent strategic initiative. Um, there's this whole Belt and Road thing going across Asia. And I think most people know what they're doing in Africa, the huge investments there in um, raw materials and all of that, taking huge positions there. But I was also very surprised to read a month or two back that they now surpassed America, the, the USA, 
as being the biggest investors and the biggest traders big, have the most trade with South America. And they're making very positive moves towards Latin America saying, yes, well, you know, the Americans always despise you. They want to keep you down. They want to keep you out. We will deal with you as equals. We have, we share your problems. They're starting to have military exercises. They're starting to train. Um, they're their um, uh, armed forces, and yeah. of course, equally, they're building, gra gradually building their own um, aircraft carriers, as we know, they're expanding. I do think it's quite different from Japan, and I, I wonder if you could say rather more about what you think about China. Thank you. Hello. Um, just two very light points. One we talked a lot about in the, at the beginning about the liberal rules-based order, and I never really think a rules-based order existed. Well, it did on paper, but when you look at, for example, how the European Union and the European Central Bank has dealt with things like Portugal sovereign debt or Spain sovereign debt, they've always just disapplied the rules whenever it wasn't really convenient. And when I read EU law as part of my master's, that's um, another example of where the European Court of Justice sort of makes up the rules as it goes along. And so there's never really been any rules in there. Um, but the other thing is, the, the idea of a new world order is, it, it's a difficult concept and you wonder why people don't engage politically with this idea of international relations or whatever. The new world order was never something people chose. It always feels like something done to them from above. Two short questions and underlying thought. The first question for Remy, you talked about how um, when Poland joined the EU and they adopted neoliberalism, they were doing so much better than GDP, but you didn't really provide any statistics on economic inequality and whether that improved or disproved. And I was wondering whether you had those. Um, the other question regarding this concept of the US being so much better responding to the financial crisis than Europe. And I would question the ethics of that and how the solution was to bail the banks and pretend like everything was okay and there was a thought of, well, perhaps some of them should have gone to jail or maybe we should have done it in a different way. And the underlying thought to both of those questions is, is it really worth it to sacrifice certain ethical principles or perhaps equality principles in pro of a monetary gain, such as increasing GDP or faster um, improvement of a financial crisis? Great, thanks. So I'm going to get the panel sort of sum up um, uh, some of the last remarks, but, but one of the things I guess that maybe is unifying a lot of these questions from the floor and some of the comments we've had up here is trying to identify the principal agent in international relations today. Has anything changed with regard to who the most important actor is? Does the rise of Trump or a, Bre or a Brexit vote mean that sort of people are making a comeback or does some, some of the comments about sort of people's seeming disengagement from, uh, from international affairs say something different? Does the sort of role played by unelected officials like federal bankers, is that the sort of principal agent in international affairs? And that, I guess one of the things I'd like us to get a handle of, on is sort of who's really, who, who can we understand is really driving international affairs there? Has anything sort of changed within that? Um, so I'll, I'll sort of get people to come in on that uh, for a couple of minutes in the order they spoke. So I'll start, uh, Cameron, with you. First, address the, the couple of questions about the financial crisis. And, and, and just to clarify, I don't mean to, to suggest that the United States did everything correctly or that they handled everything correctly. Domestically, certainly not um, far from it. Uh, but I was making a, a relative point there. I do think the United States uh, did um, 
in a, in a practical policy sense, uh, responded to the financial crisis uh, with more urgency and uh, with, with more consistency than, than, than the European Union did and um, than, than other countries in the West did. And I think the evidence for that right now is, is that if, simply if you look at unemployment rate right now in the United States, it's at around 3%. Now, we, you could say that that's not purely a matter of GDP growing, um, but uh, it, it's, it is a matter of, of at least people having work and compared to European countries where plenty of countries are still in double-digit double unemployment. Um, I think there's a moral case there, frankly, in its own terms, uh, and may have political consequences later to sort of let unemployment linger at that level for that long. Um, but uh, to, to, to get to the broader question that I think was also raised in the first question and also uh, with respect to China uh, as well, um, uh, about uh, who is really uh, leading uh, in terms of global order right now, I, I would, um, again, I don't mean to, to uh, defend uh, United States' uh, foreign policy elites, um, but that said, um, I do think it's, it is worth pointing out that their discussion on a lot of these issues has been going on for a while. Um, a lot of the things that Trump says that are, are really just sort of more rude versions of things that even, that, that Obama suggested in, in his previous term in terms of Europe needing to, uh, in terms of Europe needing to stand up for itself more, in terms of recognizing China as an adversary, in terms of recognizing this uh, and that a conciliatory approach to China ne doesn't necessarily work. These were things that have, have been over a number of years foreign policy elites in the United States have examined and have sort of come to terms with. Um, and, and now uh, we're just sort of seeing a very sort of extreme expression of them. So I, I do think I agree with Bill in saying that the United States is still the important actor here because they have the will, they have uh, the, the, uh, relative to other countries and they have uh, still a significant amount of, 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 of power. And so, yeah, I think that in terms of China, the, the conversation in the United States is basically after uh, years of trying to treat it as conciliatory fashion to try to sort of coax it in a sort of uh, a friendly manner, I think it, there's a recognition of it as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an adversary. And I think to come to a previous question as well, then I do think Europe has a role to play there. there it's going to be up to Europe to decide how it wants to treat China. It's, does it want to treat it as an adversary as well, or does it want to treat it uh, as, a, as, as, as a partner and as a, a potential lucrative uh, business partner? So I, I, you're already seeing the, 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 um, the, the first sort of seeds of that right now in Europe in terms of investments, in terms of Belt and Road. Um, I think the United States is sort of made its decision, and now I do think Europe is going to have a decision to make uh, as well, and that's a strategic question that, uh, you know, Europe doesn't necessarily, haven't, hasn't necessarily come to terms with yet. Um, in terms of Putin, I, I don't think of him as the most important actor. I do think he is a spoiler in, in the sense that, that the question uh, suggested, um, but I tend to sort of also see it the way that Obama, I think, uh, uh, posed uh, or, or described him as a kind of, uh, an, as, as um, I think two quotes from Obama. One, he sort of described him as a kid slouching in the back of the classroom, uh, sort of in, pouting. And, and, and secondly, also describing him as the leader of a regional power, frankly, at this point. It's not really the global player that the United States is, that the European Union could be, that China is. He, in terms of his power and in terms of his 
economic strength. It, it, it's really just a regional power. And I understand that Putin, that, 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 that uh, upset him to no end, that, that quote from Obama. So, uh, but, but I do think it's uh, probably because it was uh, truthful. Yeah, I do think that the US is still the strongest actor. It is still the greatest military power and so on. But I think it is no longer the driver. So, and I do think that, although it is true, yes, we had all the discussion about Japan, but I think really it's now that we are seeing much more the kind of weakening of, said, American hegemony. So, yes, I do think it is still the strongest actor, but it is no longer the driver. I do think we are approaching, we're getting towards what um, I think Barry Bizana LSE is called an, a non-polar order. Um, and that could be interesting, however that might. Um, I, I think actually on the topic of sanctions, I think quite an interesting symptom of American decreasing power is this sort of obsession with sanctions. Everyone's getting sanctions slapped on them. You know, Russia, naturally, Iran, etc. But Turkey too, you know, bosom kind of allies. allies. So there's all sorts of kind of interesting things going on. Um, just on the Russia, I don't think Russia or China are anti-systemic powers. You know, I think the focus on Russia, and especially Putin as some kind of global octopus mastermind, you know, overturning elections, is simply one of the biggest <coughs> acts of political evasion that American elites, and unfortunately it's happening now in Britain too, you know, don't like the Brexit revolt, it must uh, res uh, result, it must be Putin, I think it is, I think that is just truly going down into the kind of rabbit hole of madness. You know, we need to understand what's going on in our own societies and why votes played out as they did. You know, Putin didn't win it for Trump. I don't think Trump won it for Trump. I do think more, it was more that Hillary Clinton lost it for the Democrats rather than Trump winning. So, um, so on that response, you know, and look, we can't be serious now. You know, does Russia hack in, and commit espionage and assassinations? Absolutely. Do we? Absolutely. You know, the idea that until Putin came to power, we didn't uh, attempt to, how should I say, influence elections? That would be putting it nicely. In fact, uh, America played a key role as we know, in keeping Yeltsin in power. There's a lovely cover of time with, like, you know, Yeltsin cuddling Clinton and, you know, thanks for that. So this is the, you know, this is the world, which is my other comment, the comment I made at the beginning, the idea there was some kind of liberal rules-based order in which everyone played nice is a fiction. Um, so I don't think these actors are anti-systemic acts. I think one of the interesting things, which could go further or maybe not, is what we have seen very recently is the biggest military exercises conducted by Russia and China together, joint exercises. And that's very much a response, I think, to, uh, as well, some aspects of American policy. Great, thanks, Remy. Okay. So starting with the, who is still, who, who's still the top dog, so to say, uh, I'd say definitely it's still the US, apart from having indisputably the strongest military force in the world as of now. The US is still a $20 trillion economy. China is a $14 trillion economy. Right now, the US is growing at around 4% per year. China is growing at around just above 7% per year. If the US maintains 
4% growth rate or even a 3.5% growth rate, having a $20 trillion economy, it's still going to take a while for China to catch up to it economically. So that's, um, uh, that's one thing, definitely. Regarding whether um, uh, that Europe could um, uh, play a role here, I agree it could, but the problem is there is no one European will or one European policy towards something. There's 20, now there's going to be, what, 27 um, uh, after the UK leaves, 27 um, uh, different governments each pursuing uh, their own national interests as they see fit. So for instance, Prime Minister um, uh, Orban of Hungary wants very close relations with China and with Russia, but some other, many of the other countries uh, within the EU don't want or think there should be at least some kind of consequences for what uh, Putin is doing in Russia. So there's uh, a lot of divisiveness on that. Uh, regarding Putin, I think definitely as a person, he's a spoiler. Uh, the fact that someone has the capacity to spoil things for you also makes that person relevant to you, if the person has the capacity to spoil things for you. The fundamental weakness of the Russian system is that it is built around Vladimir Putin, who is in his, approaching his mid-60s and is not going to live forever. So the question is, what's going to happen to the Russian system in 10, 15 years' time, okay, when he's no longer there? There is no successor I have heard of, uh, or even any of the Kremlinologists, as they're called, have heard of who could actually come in and have the authority with the Russian security forces, with the Russian business, um, uh, with Russian business people, and with the Russian political elites to lead the country. So once he goes or is out of the picture, only God knows what will happen um, uh, to Russia. So that's regarding that. Regarding uh, institutions, whether they could be, uh, what role institutions play, I think at the end of the day, institutions like the UN, IMF, World Bank, etc., are only as strong as the major governments which back them allow them to be. Yeah, no more. In of itself, they don't really have any power on their own. So everything depends on what political decisions will ultimately uh, be made. Last question regarding um, inequalities in, uh, in Poland. Definitely in all classes or in all social classes, wages rose in Poland in the past if we compare to what was the case in the late 90s to what is the case today, and equality also reduced. In Poland, the pushback to this liberal global order, which we've um, uh, talked about here, was more cultural. It was more cultural. It was more an idea of, okay, fine, we like the economic models of the West. We like especially the fact they've got you know, welfare policies. They try to take care of their citizens. But we don't want those liberal values like you know, we don't want gay marriage in our country. Uh, we don't want to accept immigrants, for instance, especially from other continents, etc. That was where the pushback came from, so from the cultural factors. Great, thanks. And finally, Bill, are your final thoughts on this? Yeah, I think Remy makes some very good points there. And I think in, in relation to future new institutions. I mean, I'm always surprised that you know, most people don't recognize that if you look at the United Nations Charter, it makes four mentions to the word sovereign, which are each sovereign equality. And there's only China and Russia who systematically vote in defense of sovereign equality on the Security Council. That, you, know, you make these institutions, the Americans and the British and the French change the rules, and the Chinese and the Russians are desperately trying to play by the rules. Um, so I think, first of all, there's a bit of a confusion in that regard. The, um, I thought I was going to have to defend uh, the United States uh, being in pole position. Obviously, that's been pretty much covered. 
Um, it's still the biggest economy on Earth, it's not to be sniffed at. But also, like, in terms of the future, new technologies, artificial intelligence, why do you think the Chinese are spying in those areas? I mean, the Chinese know that that's an area that they, you know, no matter how good they are, they actually do know the Americans are much, much better. Um, and when you go to America, as I'm sure most of you have at some point, or will do, there's a soft factor that's very important, yeah. which is the loyalty of Americans to their nation state. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, you respect the vote, you might have an undue respect to the flag that maybe Europeans are much more cynical about, things like that. But, you know, that's not to be sniffed at. They have achieved an amazing degree of coherence that internally that other countries struggle to achieve. And I'll come back to them in my very closing point. Belt and Road, good point made at the front, but I think the Belt and Road, when you look at it in detail, is much more a rough outline than it is a clear roadmap for the future. Xi announces Belt and Road, much to the surprise of many of his underlings, and then they're left filling in the pieces, taking over ports that have gone bust. I spoke to an audience of senior uh, Chinese officials at the University of Oxford just a couple of weeks ago. It was very interesting because there, somebody stood up and said, actually, we're quite confused at, about what this initiative is, and we're worried about the investment going overseas to others, and then immediately shut down the party line, came in, you know, somebody stood up. Uh, and said, no, 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 this is what the Belt and Road is. And obviously the person who was confused is probably going through a re-education program at the moment. So, and that's also something about China. Well, first of all, they're a bit naive still because they're a developing country. I don't think developing the Pakistan economic corridor is going to be as easy as they think. It's not just about putting lots of steel in place. There are security and cultural issues that they're not currently well-equipped to address. So they're going to have quite a lot of challenges, but most of their challenges are internal, and they know that. Uh, and that's why I think the kind of external push is possibly a mistake for them. Very final thing on this, you know, size is not everything. We all know that. Um, the United Kingdom primarily dominated the 19th century with a foreign office staffed with less than 60 people. The United States dominated the 20th century when it came of age in that, but it became the dominant economic power on Earth with a population of just 80 million people, uh, very few of whom had PhDs. So when everybody talks about China's got the biggest of this, the most of that, the most PhDs, some of them slightly dubious, um, you've got to bear that in mind, that it's not just all about economic might. And I think one of the key factors for US domination, uh, certainly in the last century, and what they haven't quite yet lost mm is that they called themselves the land of the free. Freedom is an aspiration that everybody buys into. Free trade, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, free expression. And as long as they can rekindle their founding values, I think they've got all of what it takes to continue in an important position. They might not be the sole driver, but they are the most significant player. Great, thanks, thanks to all the panel as well. Thanks.